Hey friends, welcome to class number five. Uh, great to be with you in Wilmington today uh, via Zoom. And I want to just review a little bit of chapter two with you and then briefly walk through chapter three. Just want to say thank you to the students for just being here and just being faithful to learn and love the Word of God. I know sometimes with a video, it can be a little challenging to concentrate. So my prayer is that you would uh, just be inspired and encouraged with all that God has for you in this class today. And uh, my prayer is that the proctoring that happens, the rap that happens afterwards, will be something that um, stirs up questions and comments. And so it's really important that, um, you know, that there is some dialogue. So all right, so last class I went almost an hour, so this class I'm going to do a little shorter. <laughs> but Father, we just give you the praise. Thank you, Lord, for our students, the Word of God. Speak to us, minister life, encouragement, faith, Lord. Just bring, make the Scriptures come alive to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm still waiting on quiz two uh, for a few of you, and uh, please get that to me as soon as you can. And I'll issue an essay uh, at the end of this class for next class. And again, this is just an overview of chapter two and three. And I'd like you to focus on these words, uh, depravity and justification. And that's what our class is going to be about today. So when we're looking here in chapter two and we see verse 17 to the end of the chapter, we see that... Um, and what's being prefaced in the first couple of chapters in Romans is condemnation. Now, that's not a word we like to hear, but um, we understand really for, through the first seven chapters of Romans that we are condemned uh, without God and that we cannot save ourselves. And then in Romans 8, 1, we understand that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So remember that there is a contrast between the law and man, and then there's a contrast between Jesus and man. Now, we know in Exodus 20, 20, that the law was established as, uh, as, a, as a preface or a foundation for our relationship with God. Since Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law in Matthew 5.17, we understand that our center, our, our point of reference and relationship is through Jesus Christ and no longer the 613 laws uh, of, of the law and the Ten Commandments, which again were holy, but Jesus was the only fulfillment of that law. And it's so interesting when you read uh, through James and uh, Romans seven twelve and first Romans seven twelve and Romans seven fifteen, and again in James chapter two, ten and eleven, these verses say that if we fail the law in one point, we are condemned. So condemnation means that we have the wrath of God on us. We are judged of God. So the law was used as a way to please God, okay? Now, this is important because in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, there's the condemnation of the Gentile. 
Okay, and the cause of that condemnation was willful ignorance. And that's why there's a list of sins that are looked at at the, 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 the backside of chapter 1 because of willful ignorance. They know it, but they won't do it. Kind of like the dilemma that we see in Romans 6 and 7. The consequence of condemnation is divine abandonment. That's something we haven't talked about. But uh, in, Ro in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 32, that God leaves them over, or gives them over to their sin and the consequence of their sin. Okay, If they're saved, there'll be a chastisement in the five levels of judgment and maybe taken home early in 1 John 5, 16. Then there's the condemnation of the moralist. This is Re Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16, where... Again, the, Paul is saying, listen, your goodness can't save you. You must be perfect, and Jesus is the only one to be perfect, so therefore you must receive that perfection. And then we're going to see this now, the condemnation of the Jew in Romans 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. So again, the point of these verses is to show that we all have fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. We cannot save ourselves, and we need a Savior, and that without God, we are hopeless, helpless, and without a purpose. And this is why when we know the bad about something, we can appreciate and respect and receive the good. And this is why now we no longer follow the law. We do civilly. But spiritually, we follow the law of love, the royal law of love, the royal law of liberty, the law of faith. And these realities we'll talk about in a minute. Well, uh, we, know, we know here that there's a hypocrisy going on that Paul is referring to. Um, you know, he says this in verse 21 of chapter 2, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach what a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do, not, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do not you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? So he's really addressing the religious leaders. And also Stephen did this in the book of Acts, chapter 6. He begins to communicate that there was a huge discrepancy of what they said and what they did. And therefore... We're going to see an emphasis here on circumcision. Now, circumcision is interesting. It was something that was done as a practice uh, in, the Jewish, um, in the Jewish community. It showed their identification as God's people. Okay, That was like their religious way to separate themselves as God's people. But spiritually, circumcision of the heart the point was to reveal that we have a desperate need for God and that we need a clean heart. And this is why there was such an emphasis in the Jewish law that every baby, Jewish baby, needed to be circumcised. But Paul is always, he is transitioning again, not only from the law and ritual, but now the heart, now the relationship. And this is what he addresses here uh, as we read on in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. So for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. 
Therefore, if uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So again, there's this contradiction. God is saying, what's going on in your heart? You can have a form of godliness, but what is the power that's being expressed in you? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who are even the written code of the, of circumcision? Okay, so again, when you look at the law, the 613 dynamics of it, um, there is so many nuances and, um, you know, everyone had their way of, uh, there was an ultimate implementation, but there was always discrepancies where people would argue. It says this, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul drops a bomb here. And again, remember the we're writing to Romans who are newly saved, and they are in this atmosphere and environment of the law, the law, the law. And Paul is saying we have to go beyond the form and address the heart of the matter. And he's saying in so many words, we are spiritual Jews, and that really our circumcision is when we got saved and that we're set apart unto Christ, and we have a clean heart, a clean conscience, and a new covenant, a new covenant. I want to look at some words here. Um, Exodus 20, 20, we see the Ten Commandments. And again, this was given to close every man's mouth because, um, you know, again, when we, when we focus on our moral goodness, uh, we are saying in so many words, I don't need God. I'm a good guy. This is why universalism and Unitarianism focuses on the good of man. But really, we are in Isaiah 64, 6, we are dead man's bones. We are unclean. We are wicked in Jeremiah 17, 9. Why am I bringing this up? Because we first must realize that we cannot save ourselves. No ritual, no regiment, no law can save us. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the work of the cross. Nothing but the miracle of Christ's finished work. So if we fail in one point, we are condemned already. Okay, so he transitions here. Let's look at this. He transitions uh, and he starts talking here in, in uh, you know, the last verse of chapter two. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Okay, so there's now a shift where Paul is saying, listen, I know the Jewish law and I know that you can spend your whole life doing all these regiments and not in all these requirements. But I want you to have confidence that you can do all this on the outward, but who is dealing with the inward? Who's dealing with the mind? Who's dealing with the intent and motivation? Well, this is where scripture comes in, and this is where Jesus Christ always addresses the heart and not the behavior. And by the way, that's a good point. It's like we can act all, you know, we can behave ourselves, but inside we can be a raging uh, forest fire. And God is saying, I want to address the heart. I want to set you apart unto myself. I want to cleanse you and give you a new heart in Ezekiel 36, 26. So again, in chapter three, verse one, what is the advantage then as the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them who are committed the oracles of God. 
For what if some of you do not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true and every man is a liar. So let me show you a couple interesting verses here. So he's transitioning to the perfect law of love. He's saying, he's saying that you must uh, go deeper. You must go beyond the religion into a relationship. So we see this in James 2.8, the royal law of love is to love your neighbor as yourself and to love your God with your heart, soul, and mind. Now, we understand we cannot love or we, excuse me, we love to the measure that we've received love. So we see all through the Gospels and the epistles that we must be receivers of the love of God to love other people. And Matthew 5, 18 and 19, again, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, in loving your neighbors, you will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And this love is something from God. There's the perfect law of liberty, and this is the royal law. This is not the old covenant of what we must do to please God, but this is what God did for man so that we could have a relationship with him. So we have the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, 22 through 25. We look into the perfect law of liberty 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are changed into the glory of God. So this is important. Instead of conforming to uh, a set of laws, we are now looking into something perfect and we are transformed into something greater than what we could earn or what we could keep or what we could produce. And this is the gospel. It's the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts, transforming us into his image. Romans 7, 12 and 15, again, living in this living reality, living reality. Our faith is alive. The gospel is alive. It is something where we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So what does it mean to live in the royal law? It means that we're living in harmony with what Christ said. So Christ loved his enemy. Christ served his uh, his accuser, he was loving them, giving them what they desperately needed. This new covenant totally redefined our faith. And what is that? We have seven dispensations, and we are today in the dispensation of grace. And the next dispensation is the kingdom, okay? So we're, we're in an age of grace, but prior in, in these uh, seven dispensations, there was the dispensation of the law. And so we understand and respect it as a, as a teacher, but it's not something today that our relationship sits on. So this new covenant, Jesus came in Hebrews 10.10 to die once and for all to establish the covenant. So when we start thinking about um, rules, okay, this is where legalism structure without a spirit is like, okay, this is how I please God. Well, God is pleased with only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. So we are hid in Christ. Therefore, he looks at the sun today, and he sees you perfect in the sun. He sees you in your position and not in your condition. He sees you in your position and not in your disposition. He sees you complete and not in your prog pro progressive sanctification. So when you look, of, look at the new covenant, here's some verses that are very powerful. Jeremiah 31 
31 through 34. This new covenant is based on Christ himself and the work of the cross. So let's look at Hebrews together. Um, the new covenant. Jesus fulfilled the law, therefore it now rests on him. And this is something that Paul is trying to establish with new believers. It's like, don't go back into the oldness of the letter, okay? Walk in the newness and the work of Christ. So Hebrews chapter 8, and these are verses that you can study on your own because of time. Um, we, we, uh, we, we can't stay here too long, but Hebrews chapter 8, 4 through 13, you know, specifically, we see um, in verse 6, he's obtained a more excellent ministry. He's a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault within, he says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I, dis I discarded them, saith the Lord. For this is my covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We see this again in Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24, the new covenant. It's said in Hebrews 13, 20, it's an eternal covenant, which means it has no end. So this is, this is a very important uh, conclusion in our faith when we look that our faith, our salvation, our relationship with God, the love of God, the liberty of God, the faithfulness of God, it has no end. It has no end. And we can't uh, sin our way out of it. We cannot separate ourselves from it in Romans 8, 37 through 39. So again, knowing this royal law of liberty opens up a living reality, a living reality. We're part of a royal priesthood in 2 Peter 3, 9. And then in Galatians 5.16, look, let's look at that for a minute, Galatians 5.16. So he is moving the Romans away from a man-centered faith into a Christ-centered faith. So Galatians 5.16 through 25, again, we see the law of the spirit of life. So again, this word law, it's perfect in Psalm 19.7. But the law is God's commandment, and it's, it's him. It's based on him, and as we follow him, we fulfill or walk in the fulfillment of this living reality of the law. So, again, when you hear this word fulfill the royal law, it means that we are interpreting our life, we're interpreting our faith, we're interpreting our obedience based on the scriptures that Jesus fulfilled. So Galatians 5, 16 through 25, great verses here. Um, I say, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they are contrary one to another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're no longer under the law. Okay. Now the works of the flesh, and he gives a list of them. 
But the fruit of the Spirit in 22, okay, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against there is no law. Again, the Spirit brings us higher. The Spirit brings us into a relationship. The Spirit now operates in that fulfillment. Now, you might say, I know this already. Why are we spending so much time with it? Because we can be very legalistic with ourselves. We can be very legalistic with others. We can hold ourselves and others to false standards. This is why God's love is unconditional. There are no conditions. But we put conditions on it all the time. We put standards on it all the time. We measure ourselves by the law, by performance, by what we're doing or not doing. And God is saying, listen, it is the royal law. It is, it is determined. It is set up. It is something that is established in God. So before you bend or I bend myself into these mental gymnastics and, and, uh, and wondering if I'm doing enough or not doing enough or um, measuring ourselves by ourselves, comparing ourselves with others, First uh, Corinthians 10, 13, it's unwise. It's unwise. You know, Romans 10, 3, let's look at this for a minute. This is... This is something worth addressing as we move into this next part of justification. Remember, we are condemned without Christ. John 3, 17, if, if we do not receive the love of God, we are condemned. We are condemned. Why? Because we are rejecting the only thing that justifies us, that makes us righteous. So do people go to hell because of their sin? They do not because Christ paid for sin of the whole world in 1 John 2, 2. He didn't, he didn't just pay for the elect. He paid for the sins of the whole world. Will everyone receive that gift? No, they won't. Unfortunately, Jesus wishes that all should come to a place of repentance and none should perish. But let me tell you something. If uh, Jesus paid for the sins of the world and he did, then why do people go to hell? People go to hell because they reject this salvation. They reject the work of the cross. Why did Jesus have to come to the cross? To pay for sin, to conquer death, and to fulfill the demands of justice, which says, you are guilty. I am guilty. You are, you are in debt, and the wages of sin is death. So this is why Jesus stepped in and said, listen, I will be the substitute. I will atone. I will stand in their place. And this is why we are praising God all the days of our life and all the days in eternity, because he did the work that was impossible for any of us to do. All right. So I just told you to turn to, to Romans 10, 3. This is, this, is, this is what it is. This is why people get legalistic. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, for they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if I'm trying to earn my brownie points and trying to earn my salvation, and, you know, this is why people are, religion is drudgery for people. If you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. So if we don't submit to the righteousness of God or to God's justification, then we will subtly be very legalistic with ourselves or get put pressure on other people or get upset with other people because they're not following our idea of Christianity. Well, what is that? Our idea of Christianity is it's Christ plus nothing equals everything. It is a work of God. It is 
Uh, and Paul is saying to the Romans, listen, you walk in the virtues of God, you will grow and be like Christ. So submitting to the righteousness of God. God says that you are righteous. Well, let's look at it. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. You're not righteous based on your performance. You're righteous because of what Christ did. It's the place that Christ put you. It's location, location, location. You are in Christ. Therefore, you're in righteousness. You're in, you are made righteous or you are justified um, in Romans 3.24 because of the blood of Christ. And you and I receive that as a free gift. And that establishes our relationship as a believer. Okay. All right, so let's so again, our belief in 3.3 does not change the faithfulness of God. And that doesn't mean I live like some hellion somewhere. It means that when we sin, we lose opportunity to experience God. But when we are walking in obedience and faith and humility and grace, then we're experiencing the righteousness and the reality of what Christ has said. The, in verse, uh, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome those who are when you are judged. But if our righteousness in verse five demonstrates the righteousness of God, what should we then say? Is God unjust to inflicts wrath? I speak of a man, speak as a man, certainly not for they, for then how will God judge the world? So again, God has given that, um, that ministry to Jesus Christ. So let me just share a couple of things. So we understand we're condemned, depraved is, is the word. We are, we are totally without any desirable nature without God. We are purposeless. Okay. We need a savior in verse 10 and 11. Look at that. We need a savior. And this is a beautiful thing to communicate on the street that you need a savior today, your goodness. And this always, this always baffles me. Like how is it that people are translating their goodness as, as scales that need to be balanced from their good work and bad work. And therefore, God will say, oh, you've done more good work than bad work. So therefore, I'm going to let you in. No, God is not even dealing on that natural scale. He is dealing with us based in his son. I know this seems very much repetitive, but we have to beat this into our brain because somehow we become the center of our faith and uh, we become our own little God. So he says this in verse 10, uh, through 11, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There's none that seek God. They have all turned aside and they have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb and their tongue has practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we are pretty much in a place of uh, desperate need for God. 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. There it is. That law shut the mouth saying, listen, you cannot do it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be righteous enough. You cannot be perfect enough. You cannot be religious enough. That's why when you talk to people or I talk to people and we introduce faith, they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, that's a personal matter. Oh, you know, you know, why? Because they don't even know their faith. Because if they did, it would be an awesome opportunity for fellowshipping around what Christ has done. All the world may be guilty before God. 
There it is. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And there it is. The strength of sin is in the law. We know how bad we are. So our message isn't a sin-centered message. It's a sun-centered message. It's the principle of the mirror. I have dirt on my face. The mirror shows me the dirt. Does the mirror help me clean the dirt? It does not. I can try to wipe my face with the mirror, but that'll make it worse. Grace comes in and removes the dirt on my face. The law shows me I'm a sinner, but grace and truth in Christ uh, enables us, gives us the ability to walk separated unto him in the newness of life in Romans 6, 4. Okay. 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and all who believe, for there is no difference. Again, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his Forbearance, God passed over sin that was previously committed to demonstrate at present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel right there. Notice what it says. This is a big sentence. It was the forbearance of God that passed over sin that we are previ- that we've previously committed to demonstrate at present time his righteousness. Okay, so the past, can't change the past, but Christ came to demonstrate today, right now, 1 John 1, 9, to make us clean today, today, to demonstrate his righteousness, not my righteousness, not how good I am. Hey, do you know how good I am, by the way? Let me just tell you how good I am. No, no, I don't want to hear that because we're all rotten, but in righteousness, we are perfect in Jesus. So, Look what he says in 27. So what are we boasting in? What are we boasting? Are we boasting in works or the law? No, but the law of faith. So justification, justification. I want to quickly go through this uh, just for our edification. So Romans 4.25, we are justified and delivered. Romans 5.16, we have the free gift that enables us to be justified by Christ. We are given this as a work of grace. Colossians 2.13-15, our offenses are removed. So therefore we are able to be made clean in John 15.3 through the word. So justification is based on a new relationship, a new covenant not based on compatibility it's not based on performance and the expectation now is to receive and participate in what's been prepared for us i hath not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man those things which god has prepared for his people in first corinthians 2 9. so again the new believer who is ingrained in the law one plus one equals two. I do this, I do this, God. I offer this sacrifice, I, I say these words, I do this ritual. Uh, God is saying, no, no, one plus one equals four, 10, 15. Now it's a different timetable. It's a different ratio. It's based on 
who Christ is. So we are made righteous. Jesus says, you are, you are righteous because you're in me and I am righteous and therefore you are perfect. In my performance or my condition, we are growing in progressive sanctification and we need to revenge disobedience with obedience. We need to go positive. We need to say yes to God. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that we're just like, we can live any way we want and, and, um, you know, it won't change God, but it'll dramatically affect our experience of God in our natural life. But we're growing. We're growing in Romans 3, 12 and 23. We are growing in this knowledge that the glory of God now has rewritten our story. So our basic needs of significance, acceptance, and purpose is now found in the royal law of love. God loves you. God loves me today. It's unconditional. 13, one of John, it'll never end. It is something that will heal our, our hearts and, and restore trust and restore faith and restore uh, the image of God that's maybe been robbed through, through our experience or bad, our bad um, decisions like abuse or um, just trauma. These are things that can only be addressed in the love of God and a rewiring to understand who we are in the righteousness of God. We are everything that God says that we are and nothing that the devil says that we are. It's so important. We must not live under the law in our natural thinking. We must live in the royal law of liberty, the royal law of love, the law of the spirit of life, the law of faith. These are, it's a different reality. It's a different kingdom. It's an absolute um, releasing uh revelation, right, of justification. God says, I came and rescued you in Ephesians 2, 1, because you were lying in your blood. Ezekiel says that you were lying in your blood. You're in a field, abandoned. And I came and I said, live. And you came back to life. You came back to life. Well, we're going to close here. Uh, uh, but I just want to encourage you today, justification. He's made you righteous. You know, devil hates that. Devil's always going to talk about your performance. He's always going to talk about what you didn't do. He's going to talk about these standards that, again, show our, it, it intimidates us. It shows our inadequacy. It shows um, that we are uh, not enough. And that's what a lot of young people, it's interesting when you talk to them, that's what, that's the one thing they say, you know, I'm not enough. I can't do it. I'm not enough. I can't be enough. I can't reach that. And I would say it's because they've not heard the right gospel. They heard another gospel where you have to generate, you have to pull it up by your bootstraps and you have to perform. And God might, if he even looks at you, like he'll, he'll give you the nod. But no, no, no. God is actively involved, actively hearing our prayers, actively seeing our heart, actively seeing us as a citizen of heaven, actively showing us that it's a work of God. And we believe, receive, and walk in it. We believe, we receive, and walk in it. We believe, believe, trust, depend, focus. We receive it. We say, yes, Lord, I agree with it. I agree with it. I'm agreeing with it progressively every moment of my day. When I sin, I get back up again and agree with it, agree with it. And then we uh, believe, receive, and we walk in it. We say, yes, Lord, Psalm 1, 1 through 3, we're going to be the righteous man 
that delights in the law of God. So, boy, that was a quick Romans back half of two and three. Uh, we can see Paul is saying, listen, uh, if it's a work of God, it's a perfect work. And I, I just want to bring attention, maybe the when you write your essay, you know, focus on, again, like I said, the depravity or the condemnation of man that has been, the story has been changed now where Christ says, I am stepping in. I am rewriting this story. I'm going to take the hit, right? Psalm 22, I'm going to go through the cross, bore all the sin, all the condemnation, all the wrath, so that today we are not children of wrath. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We are not the children of wrath. We're not the children of wrath. But what we do will have consequence, but we will not be under the wrath of God. That's why the church doesn't go through the tribulation. We have to get this straight. We have to really understand that our eschatology must reflect the nature and character of God. Jesus was the lightning rod, and he was totally condemned. Galatians 3, cursed is the man that hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse so that we would never be cursed. Jesus took the hit so that we would always have a provision to be justified by faith, justified in his grace in Romans 5, 2, in which we stand. We must master this in our mind, in our heart. Why? Because this is the gospel. And this is the gospel. And I love this in, uh, in Romans chapter 3. This is, if you want to know the gospel, it's 323 through 26. There it is. Jesus and rescues man after man fouls it up. And we're going to talk maybe next class about the Romans road. It's just a great way to walk through, uh, you know, showing people that, hey, listen, uh, you know, salvation is a free gift of God in 623 of Romans, and it cannot be earned, and it cannot be somehow produced, but we receive it and walk in it in this precious gift of grace and this is why we grow in grace, 2 Peter 3.18. We become strong in grace in 2 Timothy 2.1. We are established in grace in Hebrews 13.8. Why? Because grace is what uh, demonstrates the work of God in our life. Amen. Okay, God bless you. And uh, if you want to write that essay, please, on the depravity and justification, reviewing this content in this class, three paragraphs typed. You can email it to me and also get me these quizzes. All right, love you. God bless you. Father, help us with these thoughts. May this be something that transforms our thinking. Help us not to be legalistic with ourselves or others, but to be set free in the royal law of love. In Jesus' name, amen.